Let's pray together. Father God, this is your word. You are the one who has inspired it. And we are your people. And so you know us better than anyone else is able to know us. And you know us better than we ourselves know ourselves. And so I'm praying, God, that even as we consider your word this morning, that you would use your word to speak directly to the areas of our life where we need to be spoken to. We remember that we are gathered in the presence of the very God of this universe, the one who has created all things, the one who has provided for us all things, the one who has given to us Jesus. And so I pray, God, that even as we gather this morning, that we would make much of him through the proclaiming of your word. Father, this is all about you, and so, again, use your word to glorify yourself. Use your word for our benefit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you've been around me long enough, you sort of know that I'm a big fan of asking hypothetical questions, okay? I don't know where it exactly uh, started happening, but somewhere along the way, I developed this arsenal of questions that I would ask to bring hours of fun and entertainment to any situation, right? It doesn't matter. We're talking about a road trip. Uh, we could be talking about dinner or a party. It doesn't matter where we're at. I could ask a question, and all of a sudden, that's probably going to be the, like, the funnest time that you've ever had in your life, the most fun, right? <clears throat> like, for example, a, a fan favorite is when I ask people what their death row meal would be, right? And you're smiling because I've asked many of you this question before. I would ask you, what is your death row meal? So if you're going to be on death row, you're about to die, what would be the last meal that you would eat? And it goes on for hours. People come up with all sorts of things. And it's interesting to see what people come up with. And we're kind of laughing at some people as to why they said that. And other things that we're like, oh my gosh, I, would, I wish I would have thought of that. It's wonderful. A lot of fun. Or another one that I would ask people is, I would say, uh, would you rather be punched one time by Mike Tyson? You completed my sentence. Uh, punched one time by Mike Tyson or tackled one time by who? Ray Lewis. Yeah, I would ask that question. And so you would have people going back and forth, debating which one would make more sense, which one would hurt less, which one would mean that you wouldn't die, right? And so we go back and forth, and I have tons of them. I have tons and tons and tons of questions ready to be used at even the slightest opportunity of a dull moment, okay? I'm ready. But in all of these years of doing this, of asking questions left and right, one of my favorite questions of all time to ask is to have people list their top 10 movies of all time, right? It's a conversation that I've had time and time again over the past, I don't even know how many years. And, and what's great about it is it provides great conversation, right? Now, every now and then, I, I do admit, you get some crazy answers that people will say. Like some people will say, uh, The Notebook as the top 10 movie of all time. And I'm just like, at that moment, immediately you know that the rest of their list is not at all worth listening to. And so you kind of just dismiss everything that they say from that point onward. But generally speaking, you get some good ones, right? Uh, and it's especially amazing to see how many of us have exactly the same movies in our top 10 list. Like movies like Braveheart, right? I mean, what's better than watching William Wallace go into battle uh, one after the other, fighting English army after English army to bring freedom to the Scots. We love it. It's a wonderful movie. Braveheart is on many of our top ten lists. 
Or, for example, the movie Gladiator, right? It's an epic movie of, of Maximus, who was supposed to be the next emperor of Rome, but then he becomes a slave, and then finally he becomes a gladiator again, and then he's fighting in the last scene against his enemy, Commodus, and they go at it. And it's a wonderful movie. It's an epic movie. It's on many of our top ten lists. Now, I think all of us know why it is that movies like that make our top ten lists. I think it's because all of us love the idea of a warrior. We all love the idea of a warrior, a, a brave fighter, a, a person who fights for what's right and who isn't afraid of destroying anything and everything that gets in the way of him accomplishing his mission. We're drawn to that kind of story, right? We, we can't help but root for William Wallace and for Maximus. There's something about their story that we just love. That's why I think that if the book of Joshua were to be made into a movie, I think that that movie would also land in our top 10 list as well. Because you see, Joshua is sort of like a William Wallace. Or Joshua is sort of like a Maximus. He's a warrior. He's a brave soldier, a brilliant fighter, a fighter that goes to great lengths to accomplish the mission that was given to him. His story is epic. I mean, people have been talking about it generation after generation for thousands of years. Joshua's story has been told over and over again. Kids sing about Joshua. And that's why I'm glad that it's in the Bible. But you see, before we can kind of get into Joshua's story and consider why it is that he's such a great warrior, we need to kind of consider what's been going on so far. What's the background, the context of Joshua's story? And what we find out is that Joshua's story actually begins where Moses' story ends. So we read in the Bible that about 40 years earlier, Moses was raised up to be a deliverer for the Israelites, right? So God's people, the Israelites, uh, were slaves in Egypt, okay? And now, when Moses enters into the scene, it's said that these people have been slaves for over 400 years. I mean, they've been in this land as slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, and that's when Moses enters the scene. Now, many of us already know the story, so I'm not going to belabor it, but the idea is God sends Moses into Egypt, and along with Moses, he sends a series of plagues, right? It says that there was 10 plagues that were sent, the last of which being the, the death of the firstborn in everyone, I mean, of all the families in Egypt, right? And so, of course, there's been plague after plague, and Pharaoh's been seeing this, but this one hits home because his own child comes to an end. And so what we find out is that Pharaoh decides that he's finally going to let them go. And so he decrees that the Israelites are free. And so just like that, right, Moses and about two million Israelites march out of Egypt in freedom. And they're headed to a place called Canaan. Now, Canaan is an important place, okay? It was an important place because about 500 years ago, God had made a promise to the Israelites that this is going to be your land in the future. He made the promise to a man named Abraham. He said, in the future, you're going to have a land, and this is going to be the land, and your people are going to walk into this land and call it their own. Now, this was 500 years ago that that promise was being made. So this, in other words, is a long time coming, right? The Israelites will no longer be slaves in a foreign land or wanderers in a foreign land they would have, finally, a land of their own. And so you can imagine the excitement, right? Not even just the fact that they're going to be 
free for the first time in 400 years, but they're actually going to be walking into a land that's their own, a land that God has promised them. So you can imagine the excitement as they march out of Egypt. The, God, the promise that God made to them hundreds of years ago is finally going to come true. And as they start marching out of this land, unfortunately, as is the story with the Israelites often, they hit another roadblock, right? So God promises them, listen, you're going to go into Canaan. You're going you're to go in there and you're going to make this your land. They hear that, and yet they start questioning and doubting as to whether or not that could really happen, whether or not they can really do that. And so instead of marching into the promised land, the Bible tells us that they start marching around in circles for 40 years in the wilderness. And it says that in those 40 years, that an entire generation of Israelites, an entire generation who were hoping to walk into Canaan, to set up home, to finally start their families, and to be able to sit out on the porch, end up dying in the wilderness. Promised land in view, but they're in the wilderness, going around in circles, never able to walk into that territory. And among the people that died in those 40 years was actually Moses himself. Now consider that for a second, okay? Moses was their deliverer. He was the one who gave God's law to them. He was the one that was their advocate before God, all sorts of things. But as amazing as Moses is, he's only able to lead them up to the border of the promised land, and he never walks over. And what the Bible says is that the Israelites begin to weep. Moses dies, and the Israelites begin to weep. And it says, actually, that they weep for 30 days continuously. They're just distraught, overwhelmed by what's happening. It's not even just the fact that their leader is dead. It's also that, at this point, they just continue to be wanderers. They're just in a desert, wondering when in the world will rest finally come to us. And this is where the book of Joshua picks up. I'm going to read for us Joshua chapter 1. It's the section that uh, Brett read for us this morning. Starting at verse 1, it says this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. So hear that, right? So some things have changed, like we said. They have a new leader. There's even a new generation of Israelites, Israelites because uh, a generation has died in the wilderness. But one thing remains the same. The mission that God had them on is the same, right? His plan is still to have the Israelites walk into the promised land. And what God says is that he's going to do it through Joshua, the warrior. And so every warrior needs a game plan, right? So listen to the game plan that God gives Joshua. He says, devote all in the city, and he's speaking of the city of Jericho, to destruction. Both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now, I'm not sure if you caught that, because that's the game plan, okay? This is the game plan. And, and as I was hearing this week and studying this week, 
asked my wife. I came home sort of distraught as to what it was that I was reading in the text. God's game plan for how the Israelites would walk into this land of Canaan and how this would become their promised land is this. The Israelites are going to march into the promised land. They're going to go and find anything that has breath, essentially. Anything that's breathing of any kind. Men and women, children and the elderly, the disabled, it doesn't matter. Even animals. Anything that has breath. And God's command to them is to destroy them all. Destroy every single one. Don't spare a single person or a single thing. All of it is to be destroyed. You can ask my wife. I, I came home and I was like, how in the world is this God's plan? Like, what are we talking about here? Like, is, is that really God talking? How is this the big plan? How could God say something so awful? But here's the thing, it gets worse. That was just the first city in the land of Canaan. That was Jericho. He then tells Joshua what he should do in the city of Ai. And this is what it says. It says, when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open, in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of I. The game plan's no different, right? You go into Jericho, and, and again, I think about what we're saying because often when we talk about Jericho, it's that happy song that we sing, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Literally, our kids, my daughter, knows the song and they sing it. I wonder if they knew what they were singing about if they would sing that song any longer. But this is the exact same game plan that God has for the city of Ai as well. He's going to go in there and he's going to destroy the city, everyone who dwells in Ai. And then there's even the story of five kings, okay? So Joshua is going from city to city, killing everyone that he sees. And so obviously word gets around, right? And so there's a... a a handful of kings. It says five kings hear about what Joshua is doing. So they come up with a plan to try to somehow escape the destruction that's coming their way. Because they know what's about to happen. Because they just don't want to die. Right? Well, hear what happens to them as well. It says, then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. And brought those five kings out to him from the cave. And when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. You read this passage again, and you're like, is this the Bible that we're reading? Like, what in the world is going on here? Like, why do stories like this exist in the Bible? I mean, could you imagine when you're trying to put your children down to bed maybe one night, and you're reading this, and listen, 
listen, baby, the, the five kings came out and God put their, uh, their legs on their necks. And he killed them and he destroyed. Like, what would that look like? How would they go to sleep that night? And yet we're called to read the stories of the scriptures to our kids. How could I read them this story? Why would this story exist in the scriptures? And the truth is most of us have a hard time processing any of this, right? I, I mean, there's so many different ways that you can respond to what you're reading here. Like, for example, if you're sitting in here, uh, in here this morning and you don't believe in God, this seems like a real good reason not to, right? I mean, this is like a legitimate reason as to why you shouldn't believe in God. I mean, this is exactly why some atheists say things like religion is poison, that the God of the Bible is crazy, like, and, he, and he causes people to do crazy things. It seems like, how do you deny what they're saying? Maybe there's legitimacy to what they're saying. Like, what kind of God does this, right? What type of God would go into a city and wipe the entire city out? A leading atheist of our day, Richard Dawkins, says this in his book, God Delusion. He says that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. And you read Dawkins and you sort of feel like, maybe Dawkins is right. Like, what do we do with this section in the, in, the, in the Bible, what do we do with this passage? I mean, why would I even want to believe in a God who causes destruction, even destruction to women and children? But you see, it's not even just the atheists that have a problem with this passage. I think Christians do as well, right? I mean, if we were to be honest with ourselves, some of us read this stuff and we honestly just don't have any clue what to do with it. Do with it. it troubles us. Some of us kind of reason it off and say, okay, maybe, you know what, maybe the God of the Old Testament is just different than the God of the New Testament, right? Maybe we're just talking about two different gods here. Like, like the old one is just harsh and a tyrant, while the, the new one is like a, a gentle God, a loving God. Or like the old one is just merciless and out to just get everyone who comes in his way, while the new one is sort of forgiving and is, is willing to put up with things. Or else, if all else fails, the other thing that we do is just kind of ignore the Old Testament altogether, right? Like the, the pages of our Old Testament in the Bible kind of stick together because we've never really opened it up. We don't care to because we feel like there's too many complicated things in that section of the Bible. I'm just going to stick to the new section, right? The section that seems a little bit more easy to make sense of. But here's the thing. It's in the Bible, right? It's in the Bible. And we really do believe that the Old Testament is inspired in just the way that the New Testament is inspired. All of it is God's word. And so what are you going to do with it? And I think what we need to do is we need to ask God for help. He's the one who has inspired this. We need to ask God for help in helping us to understand what all of this is about. <clears throat> and I really wanted to say, before we even try to address any of this, uh, that I acknowledge, I really do, uh, that this is hard. That this is extremely challenging what we're facing, Right? Again, this past week of study for me has just been difficult, and it was one of conflict even within my own soul of what are we doing with these passages? How do we understand these passages? I read a whole bunch of books, listened to other pastors try to preach through this, trying to understand how do we deal with this passage. And so I'm definitely, I'm absolutely aware of the difficulty of what we're facing this morning. And so I'm not at all trying to dismiss 
how troubling any of this seems. I'm really not. And I'm also not trying to pretend like I'm going to give you some sort of satisfactory answer to the questions that may be on your mind. But I do think that the scriptures do give us some insights on what is happening here. And so what I would like to do is humbly try to lead us through this. Now, if I were to be honest, right, if I were to be honest about what my own tension, what my own problem with these passages are, is that uh, it stems from the difference of how I imagine God to be and how he really is, right? At the, at the heart of it, I feel like there's a lot that goes on where the, the problem, the tension that I'm feeling is because there's a difference between how I imagine God to be and what he is really like. You see, because when I read the scriptures and I read things like God is forgiving or that God is gracious or that God always does what is right, I, I feel no tension, right? I'm not stirred up within me wondering what am I going to do with a God who's forgiving? I don't feel that way because in one sense, I would hope that those things are true. I desire for my God to be that way. But again, here's the problem. The same Bible that speaks of God in all of those ways also says that God is holy. Now, the word holy means set apart. To mean, it means to be completely others. In a, uh, completely others. So in other words, when we're talking about God, we're saying that God is infinitely different than us. He's altogether in a different category than we are. So for example, God is creator. God is creator. Now again, we've said that, we've heard that time and time and time again, so maybe that becomes familiar to our ears. God is creator. He has created everything that we see in this world, everything that exists belongs to him. He is creator. That title belongs to no one else. God is creator. We are all, the rest of the world is all simply creation. Another example, God is subject to no one, right? God is subject to no one. We are subject to God. There's no one else in all of creation that doesn't have a master above him. Only God is the one that can claim that. God is subject to no one. Another thing is that God is obedient to no one. God doesn't have parents that he needs to report to or a job or an employer that he needs to give an answer to. God is obedient to no one, but we are called to be obedient to God. So let me try to help us make sense of what I'm just saying right here. A practical implication of what we're talking about is that some of the rules that God has given us actually don't apply to him, right? Some of the rules that God has given to us actually don't apply to him. So we'll take the Ten Commandments, for example, since that's a, a common set of rules that we know. So for example, do not steal, do not steal doesn't apply to God. Because again, consider this. God created everything. God owns everything. Who would he steal from? He can't steal from himself. Everything belongs to him. So there's no way for him to take anything that doesn't already belong to him. So this idea, this commandment of do not steal applies to all of us, but it doesn't apply to God. He can't break that commandment. We'll take another one. We'll take do not murder. Do not murder does not apply to God because, again, he's the creator. The Bible says that the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. 
He can choose. Now, I need you to hear that. He can choose to make life and take life anytime, anywhere he wants to. And that's only true of the creator. It's not true of us. Again, he is the creator. He's the one who has brought to existence everything that exists. And so he can cease the existence of anything that exists as well. That is something that applies only to God, not to any of us. God cannot murder anyone. Now, what I'm saying may seem a little bit unfair, right? It may seem like I'm just making excuses or trying to find loopholes to somehow support the passages that we're just reading. But I think that we agree with this even more than we realize, especially if you have children or have been around children. So take, for example, my daughter, Sarah, right? She, she's three years old. I remember one day, just a few months ago, uh, we were getting ready to, to paint her room. She wanted her room to be purple, and it was this nasty color before that. So we decided, all right, we're going to do that. We're going to paint her room purple. And so we got her room uh, all prepped up and ready to go. And here's, here's what the rules were. We say, basically said, uh, you're going to be my little helper, okay? But essentially what that meant is you're just going to watch while I paint uh, because you're not going to be involved in any sense, right? But this, here's what happened. As we started painting, she would keep trying to pick up a paintbrush and paint alongside me, right? And when she did that, I would say, no, 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 listen, listen. You cannot put the paintbrush down. Put the paintbrush down. Put the paintbrush down. Put the paintbrush down. Listen, you cannot paint alongside me. You're my helper. You can watch. You can watch up a paint, but you cannot paint alongside me. But that obviously didn't stop her, right? So five minutes later, she does it again. I'm like looking at a different wall, and so she picks up a paintbrush and starts to paint again. So after like the third time of her doing this, I looked at her and said, listen, you cannot paint the wall. You cannot paint the wall. And so she looked at me, and, and then she said, but then why are you allowed to paint the wall? And I felt like, crap, I think she got me. <laughs> but the truth is, you see, my daughter didn't understand something. I am the ruler of the house. <laughs> I'm not joking. She laughed too. <laughs> I am the ruler of the house. I am the ruler of her too. And so the rules that I have created about painting that apply to her don't apply to me. And I can do that. I'm allowed to do things that she is not. And that doesn't make me unfair, it doesn't make me unjust, it doesn't make me cruel, that just makes me the ruler. And I think God is no different. The rules that apply to us don't always apply to him. He can do what he wants because he is the ultimate ruler. Remember we said, he's subject to no one. He doesn't have to be obedient to anyone. He is the ruler, the ruler. There's no one above him. Now, you might hear that and say, well, listen, what do I do with that? The good thing is that, thankfully, unlike me, not only is he the ruler, he always does what is right. And that truth is just as true as God being the ruler. God is not just the ruler. He always does what is right. Now, you might ask, how is wiping out an entire city the right thing to do? 
Again, even if we were to say God is holy and so because of that he can do whatever he wants, why would the total destruction of a city be the right thing for him to do? And I think it's the same reason why we think it's right for warriors like William Wallace to do what they do. Because they're the good guys. And they're fighting for what's right. And they're willing to destroy anything and everything that stands in their way. You see, you and I don't complain when we're watching Braveheart and we see William Wallace slit the throat of an, an opposing uh, soldier, an enemy soldier. Why? Because he's the enemy. And he's just getting what he deserves is what we think. Now, listen, I get it, right? That's just a movie. It's one thing to talk about a movie, but we're talking about real life here. And I would argue that it's still no different. We're still no different when we deal with real life. Because why is it that when we hear that a serial murderer or a serial rapist gets captured, that we're screaming for justice? We're screaming for justice. Whatever that might mean, whether that's life in prison or whether that means the death penalty, whatever it is, we want him to get what he deserves. The truth is that that's a right desire for you to have. That's a right desire for you to have because you and I wouldn't want to live in a world where there is no justice. Because we know that wrongdoing deserves punishment. And we know that the desire for good over evil is a good thing. It's a right thing. And so that's why it's great news that the Bible doesn't just say that God is holy and so that he can do whatever he wants, but that he always does what's right. And hear this. Doing what's right means that he must punish and judge sin. You see, the scriptures say that what happened to the Canaanites through Israel wasn't unfair. It was actually justice. You see, the, the Canaanites weren't innocent people. They were actually idolaters who did crazy things, crazy things, like offer up their children to demons as sacrifices. Listen to what one author says about Canaan. It says, the Canaanites worshipped a god named Moloch. How do you worship Moloch? You heat a large statue of Moloch up to an insanely hot temperature. You then take a living baby and place it in the hands of the Moloch statue until the baby burns to death. That doesn't sound like an innocent group of people. Again, this isn't just a few rogue Canaanites who were in the backyard, uh, you know, the backwoods doing these things. This is an accepted practice of that land. Their devotion to this idolatrous god, this uh, Moloch, was so deep that they were li literally offering up their living children to this statue. The Canaanites were not an innocent people. It wasn't just that. They were also a perverse people. They were into all sorts of things like bestiality and, and incest and orgies and, and ritual prostitution. All sorts of perversions were going on in that land. Now, we need to ask ourselves, right? If we found out that our neighbor is offering up living babies to a statue in their backyard, how long do you let that go until you say something? Or if we find out that your neighbor is sleeping with his daughter, how long would you let that go until you do something? 
I think the moment we hear it, we will say something needs to be done. That needs to be stopped. They can't do that any longer. And remember, we're talking about a holy God here. A holy God who hates and punishes sin. So the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, how should God respond to what he is seeing in Cain? And that's what's surprising about what we see. What's surprising is that we're told that God is actually patient with these people. We're told that God allowed them to continue in their sins for nearly 400 years before he does something. 400 years passes before he sends the Israelites into that land to destroy the city. You see, this wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to a few mistakes that Canaanites made, right? This was a God who was truly slow to anger and patient with evil people. Now again, I want to say again, I really do. I'm not trying to pretend like anything that I'm saying here makes anything that we have read any easier to understand. But all I'm trying to say is that what the Bible says is that the Canaanites were sinners and that sinners deserve to be punished. But again, if we were hearing that, and some of us have grown up in church, and so we've heard that 50 times before, but if we're hearing that, that should be a horrific, horrific statement for us to receive. Because if that's true, then it's honestly, it's not just the Canaanites, it's all of us that are sinful and deserve to be punished and judged. The Bible says that all of us have sinned, everyone, every man, every woman, every child, every elderly person, doesn't matter, none of us are innocent, right? We're not even just trying to make a case for the Canaanites that they may be innocent. We're saying nobody is innocent across the globe, anywhere, across any part of, of history. We're all sinful, and what that means is that we are all enemies to God. It makes all of us worthy of being wiped out. And so in some sense, if we consider the holiness of God, our amazement, and I need you to hear this, our amazement shouldn't be in the fact that God wipes out the Canaanites. Our amazement should be in the fact that God lets anyone live. Why does he let anyone live? And so because God is a holy God, his game plan, what he decides to do is to punish a sinful Canaanite people by completely destroying them. And so he's going to do that by using Joshua, the warrior. So here's just a, a rundown of what Joshua does. So in chapter 6, we hear that he goes into Jericho, right? And we heard this story already. He goes into Jericho, and he completely wipes out every man, woman, child, animal. Anything that exists, anything that has breath in Jericho, he destroys. In chapter 7, he goes from Jericho to the next city, the city of Ai, and he does the same thing, destroys everything that exists. 12,000 people, it says, come to death uh, through the destruction of what Joshua does. In chapter 9 and 10, it says that Joshua subdues the entire southern part of Canaan. So all of the, the southern cities of Canaan is now gone, and so he goes from city to city, destroying everything that he can in the southern tip of Canaan. And then in chapter 11, it says he goes to the northern tip of Canaan and destroys every part. Jericho, Ai, southern tip, northern tip, battle after battle, he goes from place to place, destroying everything in the, in the land of Canaan. And then finally, Joshua's story 
climaxes in chapter 21. Listen to what it says. It says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all of their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So what are we hearing here? That after all of those countless battles, Joshua is used to deliver God's promise to Israel. He faithfully obeys the Lord, and he defeats every enemy that stands in the way of Israel receiving that promised land. And after 400 years of slavery and 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, it says that the Israelites come to rest. I need us to hear, though, for a second. We can't get it twisted, right? The Israelites were not at all a sinless people. In fact, the Israelites were actually no better than the Canaanites. But God, in his choosing, in his pleasure, decides that he's going to use the Israelites to bring destruction instead of being the, the ones who receive destruction. And so God offers them grace and mercy and forgiveness. And instead of destroying them, he provides them with rest. And he does so through Joshua. Joshua the great warrior. And what we see here is that Joshua is a warrior, but Joshua is only a shadow. You see, Joshua is getting us ready for Yeshua. In fact, in the story of Joshua, we actually see Joshua encountering Yeshua face to face. It's found in chapter 5, and it's a crazy story. We have to read it together. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or, are you, or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. So what just happens here, right? So Joshua is about to go into Jericho. He's about to start his first battle. And he says that he sees out in the distance this man who's standing there with a sword drawn in his hand. And so he sees him, and he's like unsure as to whether this is somebody in his own army or an opposing army. And so he decides he's just going to outright ask him. And so he says, listen, are you for us or are you against us? And the man says, no. Which is kind of a weird answer because he said, are you for us or are you against us? And he says, no. And you're like, wait a second, I don't know if you answered the question. Uh, but he says, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And so Joshua quickly realizes that he's not speaking to no mere soldier. He's actually talking to the Lord. He's having a conversation, get this, with Jesus. Scholars call this a, a Christophany, right? It's just a, a, a fancy word for this idea of an Old Testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. We're seeing Jesus. So Jesus doesn't simply just enter into the scene, in some sense, in the New Testament, and he didn't exist before that. He always existed. And we see a situation here where he's making his presence. 
And so listen to Jesus' response to Joshua's question. Joshua says, are you for us or are you against us? And the Lord's response by saying, listen, I'm not for you or against you. I need you to hear that. I'm not for you or against you. You're for me. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. This is all about me. We're not fighting your war. You're fighting my war. This is my battle. This is all about me. And it says that Joshua fell on his face and he worshipped. What a right response. Jesus isn't a mere soldier. He's the better warrior. Joshua is a warrior, but Jesus is the better warrior. You see, some of us in our minds have a picture of Jesus where uh, he's just some sort of like soft-spoken guy, right? Uh, carries around lambs and, and uh, has flowy hair and is really just like well-kept and plays with children and he's just laughing all the time and, and he's saying wise things every once in a while. He'll drop a gem on you, right? But now while it is absolutely true that Jesus is mild and meek, the Bible also describes him as being a warrior. He's a warrior. Colossians explains this idea. It's from chapter 2. It says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And here's a part. It says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What is this passage saying? It's saying, listen, instead of wiping us out like Canaan, God decides to forgive us and to cancel our debts. Now, he doesn't do that by just turning a blind eye or pretend like all the things that we did really didn't happen. Instead, God battles our sin on the cross. Jesus, the warrior, fights a battle that we were unable to fight, and he secures a victory that we were unable to win. And so the question is, what does that battle look like? And it's described in verse 15. Hear it again. It says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. A pastor named Mark Driscoll gave us some insight to help us better understand what this verse is saying. He's saying, listen, you see, back in the day when two kings and two kingdoms were fighting against each other, what they would do is they would each take their soldiers, they would grab their soldiers, and they would go out into a field. And then when they get out to the field, they would proclaim war, right? They would declare war, and they would start fighting, right? Blood would be shed, and men would die, and these two kings would keep fighting until one was declared victorious. And then when victory was decided, you know what they would do? The victorious side would go and grab all the ones that lost, and they would strip them naked, and they would disarm them, and they would leave them. And then what happens is the victorious king gets back, gets back into his chariot and he starts riding back into his kingdom. And they send someone ahead of him, right? They send someone ahead of him to proclaim the fact that this king has won and that he's returning again. And what happens is that the kingdom shuts down, right? The stores close, the schools close, everything shuts down, and the people stand there awaiting the return of this king. They're cheering. And so as this king rides back into town, all of the people are standing there cheering, seeing this victorious warrior come back into their land again. 
And what they said is, as you see him coming back into the land, what you would also see on the back of his chariot is a shackled and a naked, defeating, defeated king being dragged along with his chariot. He comes into town, and behind him is the defeated king being dragged back into his own kingdom. And what they said is they would cheer and make a public spectacle out of them. And the people would cheer because they knew by seeing the defeated king that they were finally safe and that they were loved deeply by their king and that their king was a victorious king, a victorious warrior. What Colossians is doing here is, is telling us that this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. You see, on the cross was a battle between Jesus and Satan. And they fought. And blood was shed. And at a first appearance, it seems like maybe Jesus lost this battle. But then when we consider it, it seems like it wasn't even close. You see, though Jesus laid in a tomb, it says three days later, he walks victoriously back into town again. That Jesus strips naked and straps him, straps Satan to the back of his chariot while riding into town, making a public spectacle of his enemy. And he says that he proclaims his victory to hundreds of people over the next 40 days. And it says that beginning at that time, that all those who heard him and believed him, they couldn't help but stop, they couldn't help but rejoice in the fact that they knew that they were now safe, that they were loved deeply by their king, and that their king was a victorious warrior. You see, Jesus is the better Joshua. Jesus is the better warrior. You see, while Joshua would use a sword to bring judgment on sinners, Jesus would use the cross to bring judgment on himself. And while Joshua fought a battle that would ultimately destroy flesh and blood, Jesus fought a, a battle that would ultimately destroy powers and principalities. And while, G while Joshua had to fight many battles to finally bring his people into a temporary rest, Jesus fought one battle to bring his people to an eternal rest. Jesus is the better Joshua. So the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, why does any of this matter? If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you haven't trusted in him, then what the Bible says is that your sin makes you an enemy to God. Your sin makes you an enemy to God. And like the rest of the world, we are not deserving of anything besides being wiped out like Canaan was. Our sin makes us enemies to God, and we already saw what the battle looks like. He has already won, and he is already victorious. There's no chance for us. We will not be able to oppose him. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus, I want to plead with you this morning to receive Jesus as your victorious warrior who fought on your behalf and secured a victory that you could not secure on your own. I really, I, I, my prayer is that you would trust in him even this morning and that you would, along with us, cheer on this victorious warrior who comes back into our town.
And if you're here this morning and Jesus is your victor, then I want to ask us, I want to ask God that he would overwhelm us with the wonder of our salvation. That he would overwhelm us with the thought of how undeserving it really is. How merciful God has been to us. And that as we sit here and as we taste of the sweet, the sweet victory that we have received from Jesus, that it wouldn't only lead us to cheer, but that it would also lead us to mission. That it would also lead us to consider this sweet, sweet taste of victory that we are tasting is not because we have done anything to be deserving of it. Just like the Canaanites, they have no reason to not be wiped out, and so do we. We deserve to be wiped out. And yet God in his graciousness decides that he's going to let us taste victory instead of defeat. And if we had nothing to do with that, how much more do we want others who are walking on a path to destruction to taste of that same victory? As we consider Jesus as our victor, let it not only lead us to cheer and to worship, but to mission as well, that the victorious Jesus would use our lives to bring many more people to rest. Let's pray. Lord, if I were being honest with you this morning, I, I realize that words like the very things that I just said right now can easily flow from my lips. It could easily bounce off ears. It could easily be forgotten by even me who, who proclaim this truth as I walk out this door. But Lord, would you fill me with awe and wonder once again of what you have done for us that we were no better than the Canaanites. We deserved a result no better than what they received. And yet, of no merit of our own, instead of leading us to destruction, you lead us to rest. And you do so by the great warrior Jesus. We're so wonderful. We're so grateful for how wonderful he is, Father for how much he has done for a people who were deserving of death alone. That he alone was the one that was willing to die so that we would be able to live. He indeed is worthy of worship this morning. And what you have done for us is indeed worthy of mission as we leave here this morning. Help us to love others in the way that you have loved us. Help us to pursue others in the way that you have pursued us. We are not able to do any of those things on our own, so God, would you give us strength even this morning. Please hear our prayer. Please lead us back to Jesus the warrior and to consider who, what he has done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.